You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Apriremo quelle gabbie vili e co-criminali Animal Liberation Animal Liberation Animal Liberation Species brings animal advocacy to the airways from the 3CR studios in Melbourne and via podcast or online, wherever you want to get it. Um, thanks to Sally from Out of the Pan, covering all pansexual issues, including transgender, bisexual and polyamorous issues. If you want to catch Sally's show, uh, it's always on uh, 12 to 1pm on Sunday. So tune in next week for Sally's, Sally's next show. So with 1.4 billion people and set to soon become the biggest economy in the world, China has an important and growing role in the world. And some of you may have wondered, and I know I certainly have, where do animals fit into this changing um, and growing society? Today, we're fortunate to be speaking with Dr. Peter Lee from the University of Houston downtown, who specialises in East Asian politics um, and whose research covers elite politics of China, Northeast Asian security, US-China relations, and China's environmental and animal welfare politics. He also consults international animal welfare organisations. Earlier this year, in March, about a month and a bit ago, uh, Peter published the book Animal Welfare in China through Sydney University Press. The book explores the key animal welfare challenges facing China now, and chapters include broad discussions of culture, history and policy, as well as deeper dives into specific issues, including China's civil war over dogs and the controversy of bear farming. Thanks for joining us, Peter, and making the time to have have a chat. Good to be here. Uh, The introduction of the book starts by briefly describing the situation for different domains of animal consideration, including companion animals, farm animals, wildlife farming and trade, wildlife in entertainment and animals in research. It highlights some like really confronting realities for animals and also changing um, attitudes and things that are sort of um, happening to improve things for animals. To be honest, one one of the when I was reading it, I was um, there were some really confronting uh, examples that you use, but they weren't necessarily um, foreign to me, or they weren't uh, things that I haven't heard of happening in Australia. And one of the one of the things that we hear about animal welfare and issue is this strong. Um, backlash to it from outside of China, from Western communities and Western um, Western people in a, and really degrading and, and having a negative opinion of animal welfare in China. Um, but one of the, a, a really important statement that I thought was in the introduction, uh, and I quote, a main theme linking all animal welfare issues discussed is that China's economic modernization program has justified the emergence of a pro-business and pro-growth politics. And you argue that, um, that culture is not necessarily to blame for some of the animal welfare issues, but it's more this um, economic modernization program. Can you discuss that a little bit more? Um, yes. Yes. 
that, that's a great question, yes. You know, in, throughout the book, I have been arguing uh, the problems with animal welfare uh, challenges or crisis in mainland China uh, have less to do with Chinese culture. I grew up in mainland China, and uh, my parents grew up in China. Um, but a lot of people, you know, grew up in, but we, we don't do a lot of things. Uh, when we were young, right? Uh, even today, we, we don't, you know, do a lot of things that, uh, you know, uh, even if we were uh, living in China. So a lot of those practices, like dog meat trade, wildlife trade, wildlife breeding, um, and you name it, some other practices like zoological gardens where elephants were forced to perform, all these practices have something to do with money making. And we we did, I grew up in China uh, in the 1970s. I never saw, you know, documented trade. And my parents never brought back home, you know, snake to be cooked for food, right? Now, even if you go to China today, you open the refrigerators in China, we, we did that. You know, we, we went to 220 some households. We opened the refrigerators. We want to find if we could, right? We wanted to find if there were frozen snake, you know, frozen dog leg there. No, we didn't find those things. So a lot of these things, you know, have been, you know, new things, you know, developed in the last uh, 30 years or 40 years as a result of the uh, economic modernization. So, yes, so that's why I've been arguing, you know, culture is, of course, relevant, right? But culture is not the explanation of uh, the, uh, some of the animal cruelty practices. And we saw those practices in other countries, uh, like in Japan, you know, dolphin killing, in Canada, yeah, uh, seal slaughter, United States, rodeo, right? fox hunting in UK, and foie all these things. And so it's in, a, in Australia, kangaroo, kangaroo, kangaroo hunting. Yes, yeah. yeah, kangaroo hunting. So it's a, hum- a problem with the humanity. Uh, it's a transcultural uh, animal cruelty. Yeah, and I suppose one other one other thing that's um, that that idea of economic modernization having such a large impact on animals, that's the story of um, of modern of modernization in all yes. societies and exactly. the industrial animal complex. Right? Yes. We are yes. seeing we are seeing um, animal cruelty taken away from where we can see it and yes. um, hidden, and we see yes. that in factories in Australia, as well as factories in China. Yes, like a concentrated animal feeding operations. Mm. So those were creations of the Western countries, right? Uh, China introduced massively animal factory farming uh, model and uh, practices. Traditionally, you know, Chinese peasants raised only one pig per household. But of course, the productivity was very low. So in the last 40 years, when China opened up, and started to learn from the West, right? You know, introducing advanced technology. They also introduced, you know, factory farming technique from the West. That's why China has the world's biggest animal farming industry, right? You know, enslaving billions of livestock from behind the scene. You know, most people don't see see those, you know, the conditions on the farm. So, yeah, um, and I was really interested. I. A couple of years ago, I tried to um, to read up on uh, on sort of animal welfare and animal rights in China, and I think uh-huh. probably language barrier. I can't read um, text uh-huh. in native Chinese, so I, and mm-hmm. I wasn't really able to find a lot. So I'm I'm 
I was so happy to see your book come out. I think it fills a gap that's needed in the West, um, absolutely. And the the um, there's a chapter on the history on it's called human animal relations in Chinese history, and you explore several long held traditions of um, philosophy and thought yes. uh, in China that are very influential um, have, and have been influential and in changing over thousands of years, and uh, that that describe a very um, rich and um, connected sort of nature and role between mm -hmm. humans and animals. And for instance, you start with uh, Taoist idea of unity of nature and humanity. Mm -hmm. Could you just explain um, what unity of nature and humanity is and how it informs ideas around animals or has in the past? Yeah, you know, China's cultural values or the core values, you know, emphasize the importance of compassion. Uh, not violence, right? Uh, help for the disadvantaged people, help for the needy, and uh, help for the young and the old. So that's the traditional culture. And also, uh, China's ancient philosophical thoughts like uh, Taoism and uh, Confucianism, Buddhism, you know, Chinese version of Buddhism, they all emphasize the importance of kindness because they believe, you know, I'm sure many other societies and many other cultures all have also similar, you know, cultural values. They believe that if you help each other, if you are kind to each other, there is a less, you know, chaos, less conflict, and the society would, would be more harmonious. So even though China had a tradition of, um, you know, authoritarianism, you know, politically, but the, the authorities all, always, you know, understood the importance of being nice to your subjects. If you want, you know, respect from people who, uh, who are being ruled by you, right, you have to give them, you know, compassion, you have to understand them, understand the, the needs. So there is uh, that kind of, you know, human to human relation, and also on the human to nature relations, Chinese, you know, ancient philosophers emphasize the importance of not doing too much to nature, because if you try to change the nature, you're going to destroy it. Because if you believe you are more important than the nature, than other elements of nature, you become proud of yourself. You become arrogant. Arrogance would lead to destruction. So those are the more uh, traditional, you know, uh, you know, traditional values that you know uh, ancient, you know, China uh, cherished. Yeah, and and so um, reflected in. Western Western philosophy, where we talk about, you know, there's there's a school of virtue ethics that speaks of mm. the virtues that um, we should aim for. I think that's mm -hmm. similar to what you were explaining with um, the Confucianist thought, where we a, a good leader would show virtues of animal care and compassion, yes. because that would yes. mean that they could also be caring and compassionate to yeah. the people. Yes, um, you know. Uh, I want to add one more point, you know, you know, compassion, right, which is one of the values, you know, promoted in many different societies, ancient societies. So it's also the same value that Chinese, you know, ancient uh, ancestors, you know, pro so I would say compassion is a transcultural, you know, value. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I just wanted to highlight a couple of quotes from the book um, that highlight some of the, the thoughts around animals. So, um, quote, 
to Lao Tzu, humans and non-human animals differed from each other only in physical characteristics. This difference did not give humans a privileged position or allow them to do whatever they wanted, end quote. I mean, that's very similar to, um, you know, what Peter Singer argued only 50 years ago, but Lao Tzu, when, when was Lao Tzu around? When was he... When were they writing uh, their work? I think that one was probably about more than 2,000 years ago in China. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so they, these ideas and thoughts are, are, are very old. And another one, Much a, older. A, a Taoist doctor of the 7th mm-hmm. century, um, mm-hmm. Sun Simyao, uh, yeah. recommended avoiding animal parts as ingredients in medicine. He believed that animals had the same desire for life and the same right to life as humans, and that killing yes. them for medicine medicinal use only made the task of saving humans lives more difficult i mean that's what we're still grappling with in terms of um in terms of animal use for for medicines today these are really sophisticated and you know i mean china is a very old and and very um sort of sophisticated uh, culture and has been for thousands of years yeah. Yes, so that's why I was saying I was arguing in the in the book that um, some of the uh, animal rights ideas, animal welfare ideas, were actually, you know, uh, uh, were you know in existence mm. two thousand years ago uh, in China's past. Now, besides that, you know, uh, what made China stand out, stood out in ancient China, that compassion was a national policy, state policy, and the emperor himself or herself or empress, you know, practiced, you know, this policy. For example, slaughter suspension. I never read about the slaughter suspension in other cultures, except in China. And of course, Japan, Korea, because they were influenced by the Chinese culture. Um, so they imposed this, you know, slaughter suspension when the imperial families were celebrating, you know, anniversaries, birthdays or weddings, because they argue if we were happy, we cannot create a sorrow or sadness for non-human animals. So the entire nation has to stop slaughter livestock for a certain number of days. And also when nat- nat- uh, natural disaster uh, struck, the entire nation, the emperor would order the entire nation to stop slaughter because mm-hmm. we, everybody was suffering. We don't want to create a sorrow for, uh, for the animals. And that practice actually you know, carried out uh, as late as the 1930s, when Wuhan, oh, wow. when Wuhan, the epicenter, of course, the COVID, when Wuhan in 1930s was hit by the biggest floods, so the city, you know, issued an order to stop slaughter, uh, uh, you know, slaughter. And besides slaughter suspension, there were also mercy release, right, practiced uh, in ancient times, and vegetarianism, of course, mm. so... Yeah, and, and um, yeah, vegetarianism. Uh, could you speak a little bit more about vegetarianism in China, in China's history? Yeah, yeah, of course, you know, vegetarianism was partly because of low productivity in China in ancient time and a growing population, right? And, but the thing is, right, uh, the Chinese, you know, the government make vegetarianism, you know, part of the state of policy and the emperors practice it you know, vegetarianism. And there was also a societal, you know, a societal, uh, you know, emphasis on the importance of being vegetarian. Now, for example, in the book I, I talk about, you know, in ancient times, 
a woman, of course, this was too much expectation of, of women, right? Uh, so a woman would be would would earn a special status to be respected for generation of generation, because she if she could stay in you know widowhood you know after husband died and she did not marry that means she was still loyal to the family. Of course, this was kind of outdated, ancient uh, you know, uh, and then you know practicing vegetarianism, right? So a woman practicing vegetarianism was considered a good virtue something that to be praised because she was a kind-hearted person. So the society, the state was trying to tell people, if you practice vegetarianism, you can be a kinder person. Mm-hmm. Now, and of course, on the one hand, because of productivity, because of rising population, right? Low productivity. And also the Chinese authorities believe if people who practice vegetarianism, they're more peaceful. Mm-hmm. And more peaceful people are easier to be ruled. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there are all these aspects. Yeah, there. it's it's yeah. really interesting sort of yeah. cultural and environmental um, and societal mix that creates certain ideas and ideals. It's 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 so fascinating. Um, yes. And and up until uh, even recently, you highlight that in the 1930s. Uh, that there were significant moves by the Republic of China to establish policies for banning cruelty to animals. Um, and do you want to just uh, describe that and, yes. and where things sort of shifted? <laughs> yes, yes, very, very good question. You know, in the book, you know, on the one hand, I was arguing that uh, in China's ancient past, we had, China has a legacy of compassion. So if China wants to improve animal welfare, improve work for animal protection, they really don't need to look outside China. They can look inside China into our traditional past, right? And they got a lot of inspiration from how ancient people treat non-human animals. But on the other hand, I'm also saying that China has been enormously influenced by, uh, you know, people or ideas, you know, from, you know, uh, outside the country, like Peter Singer, as you mentioned, uh, Tom Regan, all these philosophers and Western practices like urban animal control, uh, the modern uh, urban animal control uh, in, uh, in, in the West, this all come into China. So China today, because it is a late developing country, Right? So it has advantage. It doesn't need to try anything new. It has something already practiced in Australia, right? in UK, in United States, but at the same time, they also have something uh, in China's past, right? in ancient times. Now, in the 1930s, China was in a very diff- special time. There was a short period of time of a peace now, between uh, the Japanese you know, invasion of China and, of course, the civil war. Right. So there was a short period of time when uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, which was we call her China's fir- uh, you know, first la- lady forever. Uh, she was American educated. Uh, she went back to China, of course. And then she started a new life movement, tried to change some of the older habits to open up China to modern ideas, modern school, uh, modern sanitation you know, practices and you know, animal you know, protection. So it was uh, her uh, who um, started the first uh, anti, you know, a society for the prevention of cruelty in Nanjing, China's capital at that time. So uh, so th- at that time, there was something, you know, going on in Nanjing, in Shanghai, those coastal cities, 
but unfortunately, uh, the you know the progress was interrupted because it's a massive you know uh, Sino-Japanese war, and of course the latest civil war, and the People's Republic of China was established by you know communist part of China. So all this process was you know interrupted. Yeah, yeah, there were certainly um, uh, more, perhaps more immediate. Uh, concerns and pressing issues that people maybe were dealing with like feeding themselves or protecting themselves from um, invasion or yeah from yeah from the war and then when the Chinese communist communist party took power because of the uh, you know uh, poor you know economic policy under Mao Zedong the Chinese people were fighting forever for food, right? They mm-hmm. had a hard time to put the food on the dinner table. So everything, you know, about animal protection disappeared, you know, completely from uh, the media. Yeah, I think that's a good spot. We'll go to a, a quick song. This song is called Silent Forest by Sudan and sung in 2014 on one of China's most popular uh, talent shows, music talent shows. And this one is about the moon bear. And we are speaking with Dr. Peter Lee from the University of Houston downtown, who specializes in East Asian politics and with particular focus on China's environmental and animal welfare politics, among other other, um, topics. And Peter's recently released a book called Animal Welfare in China, uh, certainly worth checking out. We're discussing the book um, today. And we've just been talking about the history of human-animal relations in China uh, and the sort of complex um, issues that now uh, resulted in where where animal issues are at in current and modern China. And I wanted to um, talk a little bit more about, uh, or how, uh, Peter, could you could you explain? Um, there's a few few topics that you dive into a little bit more deeply in the book, uh, in specific, specifically, one's China's civil war over dogs. Do you want to give us a, give us a bit, a brief um, intro to that topic and, and what it says about human animal relations in China? Uh, that's a great question, yeah. Uh, yes, there is a considerable misperception about the people in China eating dogs. 
uh, I have to say this, a majority of the people don't eat dog meat. Only a fraction of the people in China are diehard dog meat eaters. Majority of the people who have eaten you know, dog meat, you know, eat it or ate it by accident. Like me, when I was little, my parents never, never cooked dog meat. So in my case, I went into a relative's house and then they were eating dog meat and said, hey, Peter, come, you know, join us. And then I was only about 10 years old and I ate my dog meat for the first time. So every time people interview me, hey, have you ever eaten dog meat? I have to say yes. But that's, then I would be counted as the 30% of people in China uh, based on a survey that have eaten dog meat. But a lot of these 30% of people, I would say majority of the 30% of the people in China, they ate meat, uh, dog meat by accident or in a catering event, they had no control over the menu, right? Uh, but only a fraction of the of population eat the dog meat. But I want to say this, uh, during Mao Zedong's time, when I was little in the 1970s, uh, that was when China was still under Mao Zedong, the previous you know, communist leader. Uh, economy was terribly poor and people were starving. So the government did not allow dogs in urban area. I grew up in urban China, so we did not see dogs. Right? Now, when Mao passed away and Deng Xiaoping was the top leader, so he started you know, to uh, liberalize the economy, allowing people to, you know, to do whatever that can feed themselves, can lift themselves out of poverty. Economy started to boom and the dogs started to come into you know, urban households. Uh, and it was also at that time that small number of people started, you know, to buy live dogs and send to Guangdong. Guangdong was, you know, one of the more developed areas of China. So they love to eat the dog meat in that area. And then gradually, slowly, slowly, so that three centers of dog meat consumption emerged, one in South China and then Central China and Northeast China. Now, China produced today about uh, 80 million tons of meat from, pork, uh, from beef, cattle, pigs, and uh, you know, sheep and uh, you know, chicken. 80 million tons, that's the biggest you know, pro, uh, you know, output you know, of all the countries in the world. But China only produced 97,000 tons of dog meat. That's just a drop in the ocean, very small. Right. But of course, that 97,000 tons of dog meat came from about 10 million dogs, because dogs are smaller in, in size, right? And the, 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 the trash, a lot of inside, the skin, the hair, so it doesn't have a lot of meat. So the volume is very small, but of, of course, the uh, controversy is uh, huge, because that's why I the chapter I was, uh, you know, writing about the dog meat consumption, dog meat trade is about the war, a civil war, mm. you know, in China. Why yeah. I call it a civil war? Because the small number of dog meat traders are standing against the majority of the Chinese people who say no to dog meat consumption. But then you may, you may say that if it is so tiny, if the small number of people dog meat traders, so then why they are so powerful? Here is the situation. The dog meat traders have been able to, you know, create a narrative saying that this is our tradition, this is our diet, right? So anything in the name of a tradition or culture, 
it quickly becomes you, you know assumes a protective you know shield, right? Mm-hmm. That means you're not supposed to criticize anything traditional, anything cultural. It's kind of like a political correctness thing uh, in the West. Uh, and another thing I want to say, you know, people in the dog meat industry are some of the most uh, you know disadvantaged of the Chinese rural laborers. They lost the farmland, so the, the government, local government, tends to be more, more sympathetic to them, and are least educated, least skilled, and most desensitized because these people grew up in rural China. They used to see, you know, pig slaughter, chicken slaughter. Uh, unlike urbanized, who you know would, would would not want to do anything like that. So that's why you know the industry has been you know going on. Even though I want to point out this, the majority of the people stand on the opposite side. The government actually stands with the people. Mm. But the thing is that. They does not do anything. They don't do anything. Uh, when I sit down with some of them, they say, "We are not doing anything." Which is is the they told us which is good for you guys. I said, "Why?" He said that if we don't do anything, that means we are not helping them, because that industry is dying. That industry is dying, right? Uh, I they are not telling lies. The industry is dying. I interviewed many dog meat traders. Ask. Your your children are going to take over. They say, of course not. Mm-hmm. The children are ashamed of the parents in the dog meat, uh, you know, trade. Uh, but of course, for us, we just wanted to end as soon as as it can be enormous. And it's a, it's it, it's an industry that has been sustained by illegal activist activities that mm-hmm. that violated all kinds of laws of China, right? Because China but- China does not have farms for dog. For for meter dogs, okay, and and it's interesting that um that people from outside of China sort of focus on on that particular aspect anyway. It sort of highlights the speciesism within Western society as well. It's it's this again. It comes back to that um people's crit- attempt at criticizing China through something that seems easily criticizable. Um, you know we wouldn't ever do that but we we you know we have factories that kill pigs and how yeah, dissimilar yeah. are pigs and and dogs really um yes. it's it's and and we never hear that narrative uh, or the that you know there is this huge opposition within china to the practice of dog meat um yeah there there is enormous opposition uh, inside china you know the officials are sat down with they say that we we had the dogs, but they said they had the dogs, uh, and you know, like uh, like you said, you know, actually in China too, China has a robust animal protection movement, which is very similar to the United States. Why I say that because I've been to other East Asian countries. When I was back in China, right, uh, the Chinese animal protection movement is composed of a lot of young guys, not a not. I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's a bad thing if the movement is, you know, dominated by women activists, right? Uh, but China's, you know, animal protection movement is very much balanced in, you know, gender composition. A lot of young guys, you know, they, ah. which is good. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I'd like to talk about that in just, yeah. a, just a moment. Um, so another um, topic that you, that you talk about uh, and... 
the, at the, in the beginning of the book, you talk, you sort of create this um, juxtaposition between uh, the panda as it's almost, I, I see it similarly, there's some work on, um, on cows in India and cows are a symbol. They're not actually really um, concerned about the cows themselves, although it might look like they are. And it almost seems like in China, the, the panda is now a national symbol of a, and, and something to put forward. But you, you describe the, how almost all other wildlife is um, or may be neglected in that way. Not, not by everyone. There's obviously um, good organisations who are working to protect them. But there's this real dichotomy, and you, you particularly talk about bear farming. Do you want to just um, discuss uh, bear farming, which I imagine many of the listeners will be aware of, um, but yes. it, it would be good to have your perspective on that. Yes. I have to you know, thank uh, Joe Robinson, CEO and President uh, of uh, Animals Asia Foundation, who has been you know, fighting for bears in China, because uh, I read about her. And uh, over about 20, you know, five years ago, and I was very much inspired by her, you know, selfless, you know, contribution uh, and the work for uh, the bears. And I started to, to join the animal protection movement right? and also, of course, the research work. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we all know that panda bears are disarmingly cute, right? They're so cute, you know, just like Carla in Australia, you know, yep. seals in uh, Canada. Uh, but of course, you know, um, not all animals are being treated equally, right? And uh, it's a human, I, I think would be, that it is a human error. We all are discerning, right? We all discriminate in one way or another or on different issues. Uh, bears in China, black bears have been, you know, brutally farmed for the bio. Right, the liquid from the gallbladder. Uh, I would not say it has, you know, it was triggered. It was because of Chinese traditional, uh, uh, Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, but I would say it's because of business interest. Right? Now, the thing is, in ancient China, as you mentioned, right, the ancient traditional Chinese, 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 traditional, uh, traditional Chinese medicine master called on people to avoid using animal parts. Right. Uh, right. So you, if you want to save people's life, you, you, you kill an animal that's not, you know, uh, that's not going to be, you know, uh, effective. Right? And of course, there is, you know, philosophical uh, ideas in that respect. But the fact is, you know, bear bio, right, there is substitute. If bear bio were really effective, the word substitute that can be, you know, utilized, herb, you know, different herbs or plants that can be utilized. Now, there is a totally, no, there is a no, you know, uh, justification for black bears to be, you know, enslaved, you know, to be caged for up to 30 years, you know, for the sole purpose of getting bio uh, from, you know, uh, the gallbladder, uh, you know, it's, you know, I call it, you know, modern slavery. Uh, there is no way you can improve it. It has to be abolished. Uh, it, it is also driven by the business interest. Right? And t- nowadays, China produces so much bio bio. And, uh, you know, they can only use that much for traditional Chinese, Chinese med- medicine prescription. A lot of those uh, bio bio has been utilized for purposes other than 
medicine, right? Mm. So that's why it's a, uh, it's a, a supply driven. It's a supply driven demand in quotation marks, just like dog meat is a supply driven. The dog meat traders were promoted. Bayer Bio, you know, and wildlife products like wildlife food, all these are all, you know, supply driven. They tell people, hey, this is good for, for your skin, for your fertility, for your longevity, for your brain, uh, for fighting cancer and for your sex, right? These are all the, you know, the promotions by the industry. Mm. I can tell you one thing. If China today has a short supply of a pork, there will be protests, there will be unrest in China. But if there were, you know, a short supply in bear bio, in wild animal meat, in dog meat, there will be no protest. The country will continue, people will still be happy. So you can see, you know, the demand is very much supply driven by the businesses. Yeah, and, and what's the um, sort of perspective of the authorities in terms of, say, bear farming and other wildlife uh, trafficking? You know, for a bear bio, for bear, uh, uh, you know, bear farming, bear bio use and wildlife uh, use, especially wildlife use in traditional Chinese medicine has been very much protected by the Chinese authorities. Now, why so much protected? Now, one of the reasons is the wildlife business interest is a powerful lobby in China and are very skillful in making the government, you know, uh, agree or uh, to tell the Chinese government that this industry is not just good right, for the businesses. It's also for public health. It's for conservation. Now, that telling the government that by farming these bears in captivity, we are saving bears in the wild. But that's just completely false. Mm. Because you under- we, we all understand, you know, people in China, they believe in something wild. If you have something, you know, captive breath, they say, oh, I still want the wild because the wild is more potent, right? More real, more mm. authentic. They would still go to, the, uh, you, know, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, to get the wild uh, species. And also, you know, wildlife farming, for example, in China, which is a huge problem for, you know, as we know, the COVID-19 and the SARS outbreak. Wildlife breeding is an industry, also has a huge, you know, uh, oversized influence in China's wildlife, you know, government, uh, you know, policy. Now, they have also been using wildlife farms as a cover for illegal activities because a lot of those, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the individuals in, in captivity, the breeding, you know, uh, the productive, you know, capability would, would go down, you know, after several ge- generations. So they would always go to the wild to get wild individuals. When they do that, they bring viruses from the wild into the captive environment. Mm. So they have to go k- continuously go to the wild to, to capture wild individuals. And then yep. that, that's in that conservation, you know, purpose. Yeah. So that's just a force. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's interesting the um, wildlife lobby that you speak of. Um, it, it sounds very similar to you know the hunting lobby in uh, yes. Australia saying we need to go and kill ducks, or in yes. America, you know, wolves are 
threatened and endangered and their hunting lobby says we need to go and kill wolves and although the motivations are different it speaks to the power of these um these lobbies that that utilize animals uh it's it's really interesting absolutely that's why i I always say you know the more uh times i spend in the united states the more i see similarities between you know, United States or Western countries and China, even though it's under one party, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, leadership, you know, we have NRA in the United States, so powerful, right? In China, they had the wildlife, you know, you know, uh, uh, business interest. So China is, is very much a plural society mm-hmm. at the United States. So very pro interest, uh, yep. very pro business interest. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think outside of China, we don't, we, we often, get this um image that the whole country is just a homogeneity no. no. and and that it's all just one idea and everyone just falls into line but it's just how how, how can you how could you do that with 1.4 billion people it's just not how human, yes. humans exist no. No. um uh, so it's it's nice to hear hear this uh this perspective um you know uh, another thing I'm, i just want to add to you you know so china is very diversified today it's very pluralistic in a way Right. Mm. So today, even though China is still an authoritarian state, a communist state, but today's China is completely different from Mao Zedong's China. So Mao Zedong's communist society, I grew up there. We cannot say anything, even at home. We cannot discuss anything against the government. Right. But today, you know, you see social media that talk all kinds of trash about the government. And that, generally speaking, they're okay, right? So there are still, you know, interest group in China, right? Uh, for example, right? Even national government and the local government may not have the same kind of interest. Mm. So Wuhan, for example, the Wuhan authorities was more motivated to cover up, but not necessarily the national government, because if they yeah. they would they were thinking if they could control the pandemic and then everything's gone and then we still, oh, oh, uh, you know. Our, our stuff can still be sold to other parts of the country, but they did not know that it, 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 they couldn't control it. So there are different, you know, interests at different levels of the government. Yeah, and we we just don't get that. Uh, we don't see that. I don't think, or our media does not represent that um, complexity of China of China's politics. Yeah. Um, yes. We'll go for a quick break, and we'll come back and uh, and continue the discussion. This song is "Bird and Fish." by famous Chinese singer Yisa Yu Kerwei, who is known to be against the dog meat industry. speaking with Dr. Peter Lee, who is an expert on East Asian politics and particularly uh, looking into and doing research on China's environmental and animal welfare politics. We're speaking to Peter about 
his book that he's recently published called Animal Welfare in China. Uh, and there's so much that I want to speak to. We've only got a certain amount of time. So I just wanted to ask Peter um, for a little bit of um, overview. You talk about the wildlife protection law and you also speak about that there's no... Um, no animal cruelty legislation or, or laws in China at the moment. Can you just uh, talk about that quickly, about um, what that means? And and in the, in just a moment, I'd love to talk about the animal protection NGOs that you've that you've mentioned and how they work within that environment where the wildlife protection law is is pretty um, pretty poor or not great, and there's no animal cruelty law. How do they how do they get stuff done? without yeah. that legislation? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, China does not have animal uh, anti-cruelty legislation. Uh, if you look at the, the British Martins Act as the uh, standard or as the uh, signpost or comparison, China is behind the most developed countries in the world in terms of animal uh, uh, welfare uh, legislation by 199 years, because the next year would be 200 years. Uh, celebrating the first, uh, you know, modern anti-cruelty law in UK. So China's be, behind by 199 years. Uh, but the thing is, uh, even though China does not have anti-cruelty legislation, but China has a lot of other laws that could have been utilized to go after animal abusers. For example, the dog meat industry involves all kinds of activities against Chinese own laws. For example, as I said, China does not have a farms, you know, raising dogs for food. So the traders are sending people to steal other people's pets. That's a theft, a violation of Chinese criminal law, right? Mm. Now, another thing, you know, Chinese government has a strict control over certain chemi chemical uh, substances. You cannot use some of the poisons. You cannot buy some of those poisons. If you, you know, have those poisons without a license, without permission, you can go to jail, right? But a lot of those dog meat traders, you know, have access to those poisons like cyanide to kill dogs, to immobilize dogs. That's another way of uh, another, uh, you know, violation of Chinese law. Food safety law. China's food safety, safety law says very clearly, no animals who are sick who are dying, who come from unknown sources, can be slaughtered for food. Mm. Most of the dogs are, 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 you know, are stolen. We don't know where they are from, right? So that's why I say, even though China, you know, does not have anti-cruelty legislation, it has a lot of laws that can be utilized to go after animal abusers. But I want to, to, to tell people, uh, one milestone, you know, step taken by the Chinese government Shenzhen and Zhuhai last April outlawed the dog meat trade. Now, Shenzhen is China's mega city north of Hong Kong. Now, what is important is that that city is a pilot city. What I mean by pilot is any policy experimented there, you know, is going to be introduced to the rest of the country. So when Shenzhen decided to outlaw dog meat trade, dog meat consumption in the city, we were very excited because I'm sure the decision was not made by Shenzhen city government, but it was suggested by the national government. You try it and see how people re re react to it. And then we may you know, introduce to the rest of the country. And also China's national government dis uh, declared dogs are companion animals, not a livestock. Mm. 
So that's a major step, you know, taken. I would say by any communist government I have ever, you know, read, right? Mm. Because you know, dogs, you know, companion animals are not considered something to be important in all these socialist states in the past. But this is the first recognition, you know, dogs as companion. Right? Yeah. Um, so, um, so now about wildlife protection, or China's wildlife protection law was adopted in 1988 and uh, implemented in 1989, revised several times, went through a major revision, you know, three year, uh, four years ago. But this law is a disaster. Even after the latest uh, you know, revision, it, it, we believe it is not a law for the protection of wild an animals, but a law for, for the protection of the wildlife business interest. That's why wildlife farming got out of control, wildlife trade out of control for many years. Hmm. Do, you, do you see, um, it, it sounds like things are slowly um, changing then there's sentiments that may be changing you know as you say with uh, the ban on on dog meat trade um can you talk about the the current animal protection ngos in china and the um and what they're doing and how they're uh, either adding to the the conversation changing the conversation and improving things for improving things for animals in china uh, China's animal pro protection community started in the early 1990s, right? And, uh, you know, started from Beijing and then to other major cities. Now, today, almost every province has one or two major, you know, organizations, local NGOs to speaking for animals. Now, all these, uh, these NGOs typically working on companion animal issues, you know, similar to, you know, the rest of the world. Because people, you know, live with the dogs and the cats, so those are the, you know, uh, individuals they they care more, uh, which is understandable. Um, so these organizations have been involved mostly in, you know, animal rescue mm -hmm. and uh, helping, you know, urban animal, you know, control uh, and uh, you know putting proposals for, you know, revising local dog registration policy, dog, you know, protection policy. And other you know activities, and also they have been, uh, they have been very active, uh, you know, sending you know letters, petitions to national government for outlawing dog meat trade, outlawing wildlife trade, uh, and also they engage in massive you know trans-provincial, uh, trans you know uh, regional uh, dog rescue, and I'm sure you you read about those you know highway interceptions, and I would say that they you know did make a huge impact. I'll give you two examples uh, very quickly. Uh, in 2010, Canada wanted to, you know, export the seal meat, you know, to China. So the Chinese Animal Protection Organization, the formed a national coalition and petitioned the Chinese government and stopped the Canadian attempt to sell, you know, seal meat to China. Yep. So that's one. And another example is the American uh, Ameri four Americans want to bring rodeo to China to be staged in the Olympic you know, stadium in Beijing, and it was shut down by the Chinese Animal Protection Organizations. That's also in 2012. Yeah, that's great. And, and I mean, that's, that sounds, it's, it's sort of the same stuff that we do in you know, America at the moment, are trying to stop the sale of kangaroo leather to America. And they, 
Yes, they heard about, uh, you know, some people talking about uh, selling kangaroo meat and it, I think the dingo meat from Australia uh, to China. And uh, so uh, if anything that should materialize or in, in the talks between Australian government and Chinese government, they're going to stand up for sure. <laughs> mm, yeah, good, good. Uh, that, that's really, that's really great um, to hear that the, that the movement there is vibrant and, and working. Um, and doing good things, getting stuff done. I mean, that's the hardest thing, isn't it? Actually getting things done. <laughs> yes. you know, um, no matter China, where you are. Yeah. Yes, you know, China has a huge, you know, a huge group of one single child, you know, generation, young people. So mm-hmm. these people were born in the 1990s, uh, you know, uh, you know tw- uh, tw- 2000, right? The new century. These are the people who are least tolerant to animal cruelty. And they, many of these people grew up with pets. That's why, you know, China has, a, you know, China's future in animal protection is bright. Yeah. So I'm anime, optimistic. It seems it's the same. It's the same in um, other countries as well, isn't it? It's like the, the people, yes. the students coming through my, my classes now are uh-huh. um, ha- far more aware and conscious of animal issues than yes. five, five years ago. It's um, yes. things are changing and for the better, I, I hope. Yeah. Yes, yes. You know, I was in I was in Sydney, uh, Australia, uh, and I was sitting at uh, you know outside the you know uh, Sydney Opera House. Some of the birds were you know flying overhead, and the, they have the you know bird droppings on the table, right? Uh, so I, I sat with a group of young people from China, and they said, "Wow!" Uh, I say, "In China, then you would drive this bird away." The, you know, I say, "You know, they belong here too, mm. right?" The Japanese just wipe it. So one of them, you know, t- said, "I said, I'm, I'm so happy that you would, would say like that. Yes, they belong here too." Right? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It, it's it's good. It's it's promising to um, see those sentiments growing. Uh, so one last thing I wanted to wanted to ask. Um, there was an article in the Guardian not long after your book was published um, mm-hmm. with the provocative title, China's appetite for meat tra- uh, fades as vegan revolution takes hold. Uh, can you provide any, any insight into that? Is that just like a, um, a, a, a clickbait title? Is, is there much, um, I, many ideas around veganism in China or uh, what's the current state of things there? Well, I would say... You know, vegetarian lifestyle uh, is coming back to China, right? And veganism is beginning to appear, you know, on the horizon in China. But I will not put too much, you know, emphasis on that one. Uh, it's a beginning to, to, to start. Uh, the thing is, you know, China suffer, a, a majority of the people, especially people my age and older, suffered enormously uh, in Mao Zedong's time, you know, food deprivation. So yep. they love the food, right? So it's a, it's a huge challenge to do, you know, like, uh, you know, meatless Monday, this kind of, uh, you know, campaign. Uh, but the younger generation, they are highly educated, you know, community, right? And in city, in Beijing and those areas, uh, there is a huge, you know, I would say there is a huge potential that a veganism and vegetarianism is going to, you know, take hold, you know, but, you know, in a more gradual way. So, mm-hmm. so on the one hand, I would say, yes, you know, the, you know, that's possibly the future direction, but at the moment, a lot of work still needs to be done. Yeah. And, and um, just, I wanted to get your thoughts. Like, is that work mm-hmm. something that um, 
that international groups have any role in? Or is it mostly something that the Chinese groups will be driving? Obviously, I think they would be driving it. But if someone is, if there's an NGO in Australia or America or the UK that's keen on supporting veganism in China, would that would that work, or would that, is it just not not really likely to work? I would say it it would work,、uh, but it's kind of a little bit of sensitive, you know, issue from outsiders. You know why? Because there were the the people in China, you know, if people like like me, you know, in the animal protection community, they would easily understand our, you know, what we want to accomplish. But for the majority of the people, they would say, hey. Why you guys come to tell us eat less meat? We went through you know hardship right in the past right, and they would they would you know、uh, some of them would would think that oh yeah you,、uh, you know、uh, are you guys worried that we would eat as much as you guys do and then the the world would not have produced enough,、uh, so there would be that kind of misunderstanding. But the thing is, I have been arguing in my book,、uh, second my other article, China today now China. To, Really does not need that much meat, because China has been catch up with you know European North American meat consumption. We don't need to. Why we don't need to? Look at the Japanese diet. That's very similar to Chinese diet, right? And the Chinese, you know, in the past, that not only they did not have animal protein intake, they did not even have you know protein from other plant based you know、uh, you know you, you, you know products. Right, but today, today's China. You go to Chinese market, you know, plant-based protein products are overwhelming. So you know, uh, uh, so much in you you in ample supply, right? So even without you don't need that you know protein from you know animal、uh, animals, then you still have enough protein. So that's why for the majority, I would say in that way. Right, you you don't worry about it. Look at the Japanese diet. Japanese today are eating less meat than the mainland Chinese. Chinese are eating more meat than Japanese because they have more diverse、uh, diversified diet. China has a more diversified diet as well. China Chinese eat more meat. They eat more other you know like a tofu tofu products. That's also a lot of protein, right? So I would say on the one hundred years, you know,、uh, international organization can work together. With Chinese organizations, you know NGOs on you know meat reduction, you know going to a, you know plant-based food,、uh, but there is also other you know aspect that there would always be there, you know sensitivity、yeah. issue, right? Because、yeah. they are Westerner, right? So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.、Oh, that that that's um, it's been a really fantastic chat, Peter. I really appreciate your time.、Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to say before we head off? Maybe、um, I imagine people can find your book in any good. Bookstore,、um, and just again, it's Animal Welfare in China, and、yes. you could find it through Sydney University Press.、Um, yes. But I imagine bookstores will also have it.、Um, so check your local bookstore.、Um, yeah, I think Amazon Amazon dot com has it. Amazon dot com. Amazon dot com. Yes. yes. Fantastic. And where where、yes. can people find more of your work or、um, what you're doing next? <laughs> okay,、uh, I.、Uh, You know, I I, I wrote a, a lot of stuff、uh, for I wrote quite a few for South China Morning Post. If people want to read about、uh, you know my essays on wildlife、uh, issues, you know companion animal issues, cruelty issues, just put you know Google my name Peter J Lee,、uh, China, 
animals, you're going to pull up a lot of my interviews with, with such as CNN, uh, you know, New York Times, all these different media, and also, of course, my, my own commentaries. Yeah. So yeah. just Google me. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Peter. We appreciate you um, coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening. You've been listening to Freedom of Species here on 855 AM 3CR Community Radio, uh, or you've been streaming us via podcast or online. And um, catch us next week from 1 till 2. We're always here Sundays. Uh, We'll see you then. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.